Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here. We're going to go uh, back to Hebrews chapter 11, or continue. And we'd been talking about Abraham for a long time. And then uh, we went back to Genesis, spent some time there, and we kind of finished up a little bit about Abraham. Our last verses last week were about uh, just faith, those of faith that were like Abraham and those that were before Abraham, Abel and everyone that was mentioned. Now, after that little break of verses, uh, I'll read it here again in Hebrews 11. We're going to return to Abraham, but this time uh, it's going to be kind of in line with the patriarchs. We'll, we'll see here in just a moment. So we just finished uh, chapter 11, say, verse, verse 11. By faith, Abraham, even though, or there's Sarah, even though she was past age, she, she had a child. Verse 12, and so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as countless as the sand of the seashore. And so that was this one person's faith, one person's work, uh, produced tremendous results in the future. And then in verse 13 through, through 16, we t- talked about that last week, it says all these people, and probably when it says all these people, it's referring to all those that have been mentioned so far in Hebrews 11, with if it be Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah. But it, it would include the whole chapter, but that's probably in the context what it's referring to. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And we talked about that because of their faith. They could see them, although they could not have them because they're not of this age. You can't, you can't get what's beyond the capability of this age handling. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. In other words, their whole pilgrimage here or their sojourning here on earth was like Abraham in the promised land. He lived in tents and they never had a home because they were looking for, again, the city, something bigger. The, the city whose architect and builder is God. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of this country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That's the, the city of God from, that's been here since he turned. Just like uh, the lake of fire has been prepared in the past for the devil and his angels in the future. There's a city prepared for the people of God. It was prepared in the past, and it's for the people of God. And we're going to that city. And so that kind of summarizes that. So now it appears we're done with Abraham, but now right away we start again with Abraham. But this time it continues from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and up to Joseph. In verse 17, so again, we're kind of, uh, I don't want to say we're switching directions, but we are, we've concluded the part about Abraham living by faith and how he's an example of those who live by faith. And now we're going to go again and pick up with Abraham and march on through the patriarchs and see that each of these, it's going to be four generations of people who had faith. And here's how it says right here in the NIV. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Boom, that's Abraham. Next, verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. That was Isaac. Verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Verse 22. By faith, Joseph when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of Israel from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. So there we have now, after talking about Abraham and those that came before him, that little section about faith and looking to the city. We now go to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. You've got one, two, three, four generations of the patriarchs right here, and all of them are going to be living by faith. Now, listen, this is a talking about faith. We're not going to be talking about their obedience, uh, obey, or about their sinlessness, or their perfection, or their character. Not that that's not important, but what this author is concerned about is about their faith. Were they looking to this age, this city here, uh, the temporal things, and were focused here? Or were they sojourners passing through this age looking 
to the future. Uh, again, when we go through the New Testament, we talk about if you're going to follow God, you're going to have to have a character of God. You're going to be conformed into the image of Christ. You're going to be conquering sin, moving away from sin. But we can see examples of Abraham's life when he was deceitful. Isaac's life, even we could say that he was in a times that he was you know, not, a, not a, a brave, he was more cowardly in a sense. Uh, Jacob, you can definitely see him being deceitful. Uh, Joseph, uh, really it's hard to find something wrong in Joseph's life. Joseph and Daniel are two guys that there's not a lot of Mars in their character portrayed in the scripture. But the point is here, we're not going to go back here and find all the mistakes or their human nature here. What we're going to see is beyond, besides all their their failure, we'll say failure, you could say sin, all those things, what they had was faith. And that would be encouraging to us. Again, like we said the last couple of weeks, we're not, talk, we're not dismissing sin, we're not dismissing you know, failing to obey God and His direction. But what we're talking about is in the midst of your life here, in the midst of your failures, in the midst of the sins, in the midst of your bad attitudes, all the things you look at yourself and say, I, I could be so much better. It's like, yes, but are you looking to the city of God? It's like, well, well, yes, I am. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about, are you looking here? Again, not making an excuse for this, but I really think if you are looking to the city of God, if you're looking to Christ, and the author's going to talk. Now, listen, we're going to talk about, if you just turn this chapter from chapter 11 to chapter 12 and 13, uh, we're going to talk about sin. And one of the issues here, what has to come first before you're going to conquer sin, you're going to have to have faith. You're going to have to be looking towards that city to get the nature of God, the vision of God, to be able to look at this earth and be able to say, I'm leaving this behind. If you don't have a vision here, it's going to be hard to walk away from sin because it's, it's this world. And so if you're going to teach something to Christians, if you're going to teach believers something, you're going to have to teach them about the future, about what God is doing, who he is, where you're going. You're going to have to give them faith they will overcome these things because they're being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So again, first comes faith, and then comes your victory over sin. Again, we're not justifying sin, but the issue of every one of these guys, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is that they had faith. That's what this chapter is about. They're looking here. And we, and we went through Abraham's life. We could go through Jacob's life and see all kinds of problems. Um, again, chapter 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Now, many times when people teach this, it's a, this is a struggle between uh, Abraham's love for God and Abraham's love for his son. Or is, God, is Abraham going to obey God or is he going to give in and, 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 and have love for his son? So that, that when you, just a surface reading, it's like you think, man, if God asked me to do that, it'd be like, am I going to obey God on this ridiculous request? Or am I going to take care of my son? It's like, ah, oh, I love God more. I'm going to kill Isaac. That's not, that's not, the, that's, that's not, that's not the issue here. It's not, it's not the issue, are you going to kill your son because you're going to obey God? The issue here, the conflict that you can see, now, once I show this to you, you'll see it. The conflict here is the promises of God, the promise that God gave Abraham. Abraham has faith in it. And God tells Abraham to do something, we'll say, to obey God, his directions. And he says, uh, he, when God tells him to do something, he says, leave Ur, he goes to the promised land. When he says to do this, he does that, in many cases. Uh, he's going to have faith. So he's got faith in the promise, and you can see the promise is in the next verse, and you know what it is. Uh, verse 18, even though God had said to him, the promise, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So th this, this promise is that Isaac, you're going to have a son Isaac, and Isaac is going to be the source of the family that's going to get the land, they're going to become a nation. All these people, this whole group, is going to bless all the nations, but it all comes through Isaac. It, it, it can't come through Ishmael. It's not going to come through someone else. The promise is through Isaac, and God's made that very clear. Then he, when he called him out of Ur, he says, I'm going to bless all through you. All nations will be blessed. And the whole contrast there for 50-some years, the problem was, okay, I believe you, but... Uh, do you understand, when I die, this is all over. I, no one's going to receive my inheritance. I'm not going to be blessing anybody. I'm going to leave it to Eliezer, my servant from Damascus, and he's going to inherit my estate. And so 
I'm out of the picture. And God says, you'll have a son. Through your own body, you'll have a son. And it is through that son all these things will take place. So he's been waiting for years. He was 100 years old when Isaac was born. And he waited at least since he was 70. So now Isaac has been born. Isaac now is a man, uh, probably a teenager, and he's going to ask him to sacrifice him. Now by sacrificing him, that's going to nullify the seed that's going to produce the family, that's going to give the land, that's going to become the nation, that's going to bless all the nations. It's like, and again, that has, you know, Jesus Christ, you know, coming through that line. It's got the eschatology. I mean, God's whole plan is eliminated when Isaac dies. But now, God says, obey me, offer him. Now, Abraham has faith in this promise. He has faith in this being obedient. But his obedience is going to nullify the promise. And so his faith, in a sense, is in, is in conflict. It's like, which one? I mean, you're going you're gonna to crash one way or the other. So he has to. The issue is not, do you love? God is not saying, do you love me more than your son? That, that is not the question. The question is, do you have faith to trust me, even though following me seems like it doesn't make sense? In other words, Abraham is not going to understand. He's lacking understanding in this. He, he knows this promise. He's got faith in this promise. He's acted on this promise. He's got this the direction. He's going to follow that. But he does not understand it, so he has to think. He has to calculate. And that's what it says. The word is, we get our, our English word logic from the Greek word used right here. He's going, if you look right here, uh, oh, I'm looking at the notes. And we're going to jump ahead. I've got to come back to this verse. Yeah. Go to page 2. And you can see in the English Standard Version, verse 18, of whom it is, was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, through this promise right here. So what Abraham does to resolve this in verse 19, he considered, that's the key word, considered, that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So when Abraham looks at this situation, he's got faith in the promise that through Isaac, all nations are going to be blessed. That's where the Messiah is going to come to. That's where his, his nation is going, to, going to receive this land. All, everything God promised Abraham is going to come through Isaac. He believes that. But now he's being said, sacrifice him, which is on Mount Moriah, right here, on that mount right there, and he's going to be gone. So how does he, he reasons, and you can see the word right there, it's, it's in the uh, English, in the NIV, or English Standard, considered, if you look at point two under verse 19, considered is, there's your Greek word, logis amenos, it means to reckon, it means to consider. The ideal is to compute, to take into account, to reckon, to reason. Abraham, when God tells him this, he also knows this. So to match this up, he's, got to, he's, like, he's thinking, how am I going to sacrifice Isaac? But God's made it very clear, it's through Isaac that all the nations will be blessed. And he does the reasoning. He, he's, he's, I don't understand, what, what, but it has to happen. What has to happen, there has to be, once I sacrifice Isaac, there has to be a resurrection. And so he's not like, do you love God or love Isaac more? It's like, my problem is, I've been taking care of Isaac because this is the promises here. And now I'm going to sacrifice him. I'm only going to do exactly opposite of what I've been trying to do. So my faith says, well, God is not going to forget this and move on to this one. He's going to reconcile these things by raising him from the dead. And so when that happens, I, I you know, like if you, you know, read a story or you see a movie or people tell a story, Abraham's not weeping and wailing on his way up Mount Moriah. He's taking Isaac, and again, we went, when we went through the story in Genesis, Isaac is carrying the wood. Uh, he's a young man. You know, I think we said somewhere 14, 15, 19 years old. Uh, Abraham is an old man. Isaac was born, Abraham was 100. That puts Abraham 115 to 120. And it's just, he leaves the servants behind. Him and the boy go up Mount Moriah, and somehow Isaac ends up on the altar bound. Because that's what the Jews refer to as the binding of Isaac. He's bound on the altar. 
and I, Abraham's got the knife, and it, now again, I, I did this again because he's, think, he's not going to stab him to death. He's going to cut his throat like an animal sacrifice. And it's like, so somewhere in here, you've got Abraham's faith, but you haven't got a man that's wrestled his son to the altar and knocked him out with a stone. He's, he's somehow cooperating with it. There's some, something Isaac understands this also. The point being, Abraham had in his mind, in his thinking, he's thinking, God's going to raise him from the dead. I'm going to do, we're not getting rid of the, the seed. We're not getting rid of Isaac and changing this promise. We're just offering him as a sacrifice to God who's going to raise him from the dead to make this all take place. Now, understand, as you think about this, we know Old Testament, we got the Exodus, we've got the King David coming, we've got the Babylonian exile, then we've got the end of the Old Testament, the coming of Christ, the Gospels, the early church, the Acts, all the epistles, now we've got all of this, then we've got, you know, 2,000 years of history, and then we can project, we're we're right about here in time, per se, and then out here, we're kind of projecting out here, reading the verses, kind of projecting what we think is going to take place. So this is what we call end times, or eschatology. This, all the stuff is, this is all history, documented. Abraham is living right here. So if we were to draw a dotted line for prophecy, eschatology, all this is eschatological, and Abraham is right here. And the promise is the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head and take away his power, and there's going to then be the blessing, the restoration of what God originally planned. Abraham is not thinking, well, you know, then after this, I'm going to have, you know, 12 great-grandsons who are going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. They'll be saved. Now, God did tell them for 400 years they'll be slaves in Egypt. Then they'll come back and take this land. So there is this 400-year prophecy, he knows. But he's combining that 400-year prophecy with the promise of blessing all the nations through Abraham. And Isaac is very, very key. In fact, I would venture to think that Abraham has made a connection to the seed of the woman crushing Satan's head being the seed of Isaac. I mean, it's like, and in a sense it is. Because Isaac will produce, Jacob will produce, uh, uh, or yeah, Jacob, the tribes, eventually Judah, and then Jesus through the line of David. So it is for that. It's like, but which one of these guys is going to be? And that starts way in the Garden of Eden in the very beginning. Satan heard the seed of the woman, and he's talking to Eve, or with Eve there. So Satan's there, Eve's there, Adam's there. The seed of the woman will crush your head. So it's like, okay, well, I'm going to watch this. And he has, she has two seeds, Abel, Cain and Abel. He gets one to commit a sin to kill the other. It's like, well, keep those seeds coming. And he'll just keep, it's like it's not going to work. Well, then Adam has many sons and daughters, and they have get married and have many sons and daughters. Now, this time it's like, there's a whole, there's numerous, it's like, I can't kill them all, I can't betray them all. So that's where Genesis chapter 6 comes in, the angelic invasion, and they, they try to corrupt the seed. But nonetheless, they're looking for this seed of the woman since the beginning. So Abraham doesn't know all of these things. So he may be thinking something's going to take place with Isaac that we would say took place on the cross with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I mean, all this stuff, understand, this stuff was all prophesied, but the prophecies were very condensed, very compressed, and were very few. They don't have Isaiah. They don't have Jeremiah. He doesn't have Daniel. He doesn't have the ministry of Jesus. He doesn't have the book of Revelation. But yet he knows the seed of the woman and all the promises God has spoken to him that he's going to have a nation. They're going to have this land. All nations will be blessed through you. Uh, How's that going to take place? So it's time to sacrifice his son. It's kind of like, it's the, so he's reckoning, and that's what the word is going to be. He's going to do the math. He's going to calculate. Let's go back to page two of the notes. Um, point one, this verse tells us how Abraham could use his faith to obey the command which was coming against the faith in the promise of the seed. Abraham had faith in God and considered that God was, even, was able to even raise him from the dead. And the word considered is, you can see again, I'll try to pronounce again, logis menos 
which means to reckon, to consider. It means to compute, to take into account, to reckon, to reason, to a logical conclusion. He didn't just say, well, I'll just blindly obey this. It's like logically he thought through it. Here's the promise. Here's the, the command. Oh, well, he's going to have to raise Isaac from the dead to get this to be fulfilled. We'll do it. And somehow, again, I'll venture to say it again, somehow Isaac was on board with this, unless he was deceived that he got knocked out with a stone if he drugged him up before he got there. Somehow Isaac's on the altar, and he's a teenager, and a 115-year-old man got him on the altar by himself. And so Isaac somehow has faith in this. Uh, and you can see the word log is mia, which is the root word for our English words logic and logical. So basically what he did, using his logic, he trusted God that God is going to raise him from the dead. And then the verse says, figuratively, he did receive him back from the dead. If you go back to page one, I've got the Hebrew transliteration and the text at the top of page one. And I'll read that box. Again, it's the Greek I said Hebrew again, didn't I? Because we were talking about an Old Testament story. I'm thinking Hebrew, but this is the book of Hebrews written in Greek talking about an Old Testament story. So the story's in Hebrew. This text is in Greek. And I'm trying to read it in English and make sense. Okay. Uh, so I just you don't have to read this backwards, but you can see just through the uh, transliteration, by faith has offered up, and notice that's past tense. We'll talk about that word in just a minute. Abraham, Isaac, being tested, even his only begotten son, we'll talk about that word, was offering up. Same word. You see where it says, has offered up, and in this other square box, was offering up, the one the promises having received. So the one who all the promises are connected to, the first by faith, Abraham, has offered up. And that word, prospero, the first one in the first box is in the perfect tense in the Greek, indicating it was a completed action. In Abraham's mind, he had, he had concluded, I'm offering Isaac. So in his mind, I'm just doing, I'm just going to do what I've already decided it's done. What's interesting then as you go through that, being tested, even his only begotten son, then the next box was, off, was offering up. That's the same word in the Greek, except it's in the imperfect tense, indicating the action of sacrifice was not completed. So in his mind, it says, the action was completed. I'm doing this. It's just, okay, where, where we get everything done? I'm doing this. But in the process of doing it, God stops him. And so those two words are right there. In his mind, he, he, he was following through with it. And also when it says only begotten son, that's worth looking at. That is, is it on the next page at the top of the next page? Or where is it at? Oh, point three. Only begotten son is monogeny. Now again, that is uh, uh, an important word because it ties into Jesus Christ. Uh, you can see gen, G-E-N-E, like genealogy, seed, you know, re, you know, born. And then mono, which means single, meaning the only one which does not mean, in the sense, the only son. It is not saying this is Abraham's only son because he's got Ishmael. He's already got a son, and he's going to have many sons after this. The only son, the idea of this is, this is more like saying monogeny contains the idea of unique. This is the only son with a promise. Ishmael doesn't have a promise. The other sons are not going to have a promise. This is the son... Again, Abraham received a promise, and Isaac was born, and he's, God says Isaac is the one who's going to manifest that promise. Now, you can have other sons, but this is the unique son because the promise that I made to you that I'm going to do, and again, notice God directing this. God is saying, I am doing this. He could have chose anybody, but he chose Abraham, and Abraham's going to cooperate. And then he, Abraham could have many sons. But God says it's going to be through Isaac. And then Isaac, as we're going to talk about next, is going to have two sons, Esau and Jacob. Now, one of those is going to receive the promise. And God is going to say, as we know, is going to choose before. While they're in the womb, uh, they're twins. God is going to say, the younger one is the one I'm going to choose. And it's not going to be Esau. And then Jacob is going to have 12 sons or the 12 tribes of israel and so god is directing this whole thing it's only through this is the only son or the unique son with the promise and that is what that word means and that's interesting because that's a word used to describe jesus 
Not that God's got many sons, but Jesus is the only one that can do what he's just like Isaac. If you lose Isaac, which you're not going to do because God's going to make sure it works, but if you lose Isaac, once he makes that promise to Isaac, everything hinges on Isaac because God said so. So if you're Satan and you are attacking this, you're going to do everything you can to eliminate Isaac just like you did everything you could to eliminate Cain and Abel all the way down or then extinguish the human race, get it infiltrated with angelic uh, DNA or blood, and we can talk about that at some point we have in the past. But if he can eliminate Isaac. Now, if Isaac somehow has a son, Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons, and they go to Egypt, and they become a multitude, what will Satan attack? He'll have to attack here, because the Messiah is going to come through here, and all the nations will be blessed. The seed of the woman now is now identified as coming through here. It's not going to be in in this nation or this race or in this part of the world it's going to come through abraham isaac jacob now one of these 12 and then there's a million of them one of those million and it's like which where are they at which one is it and 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 satan doesn't he just knows the prophecy and he knows god's right satan knows god's word he just knows he's got to defeat it he's got to eliminate the promised seed somehow revelation makes that clear that he was that the dragon was always following this woman around trying to devour the child soon as it was born because once those 12 tribes become thousands of people millions of people it's time the 400 years is up and saint knows it's been 400 years it's the fourth generation and what did his ruler the pharaoh start to do throw all the baby boys in the river because it's time well, that didn't work. Moses got brought right into the royal hill. You can't defeat God. The Pharaoh's daughter, half shets it most likely, takes little Moses out, brings him in, and raises him. Raises him in the royal house. And his, her plan is to make him the next Pharaoh. He's the crown prince. And then he realizes, wait, wait, there's something bigger going on here. He, we're going to read about eight Moses here. This will be a fun story. Because he sees all of Israel, all of Egypt, but he sees this promise of Abraham and says, this is, now you're, the, you're in Egypt. You're the crown prince of Egypt. You've been training all the wisdom of Egypt. Talk about faith. You've been training all the wisdom of Egypt. You're the crown prince. And you hear this. And you see that city. In fact, it says he saw Christ. He saw the suffering for Christ was of greater worth than all the treasures of, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm leaving this and I'm going here. Now, Moses had some things to learn. We'll talk about it as we go. But it's like, this is huge. I mean, Moses walked away from Egypt for this. It continues on down, and then finally, it comes time, Daniel gave the prophecy of when the Messiah, how many years, you know, 77, 69 sevens, and when the Messiah is going to be born, uh, and the angel is announcing to Mary, the angel is announcing to Joseph. There's all this activity. Satan has been counting down. He's been watching for this, and all of a sudden, it's right here. And then the wise men show up and say say to Herod, he's been born. We're here to worship him. Where's he at? Herod says, well, I would like to know. I would like to know where this king's at. Why don't you find him? He brought in the Bible scholars. They read, well, it's supposed to be born. He's supposed to be in Bethlehem. So they, it's like, so they go down to Bethlehem and they find him. Of course, they were sent back another way. And Herod, who now is the client agent for Satan, does what? Goes down and kills all the baby boys in Bethlehem because he's been doing that since the Garden of Eden, trying to get rid of this seed. So this is, this is right in the middle This is right in the straight trajectory in the prophecy from the Garden of Eden to the coming of Jesus Christ on the Mount of Olives. It goes straight through here. And Satan is watching this whole thing, trying to stop it, and he has been since the Lord announced it to him in the Garden of Eden. And Abraham, of course, is at this point, and we've got an advantage of knowing a lot of details, but in a few generations, a few hundred years or whatever, or on the other side of eternity when we get there, the things that we're speculating about that, you know, we've only got limited understanding, it's gonna have, we're going to have a better understanding of it, be better, greater, greater revelation. All right, let's see. So that's what we got right there. I'm going back to page one of the notes. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his son. So right there, see, you can see it in the, in the English standard. He offered up Isaac. It's done. And he who had received the promise was offered, had already offered up his son 
was in the process of finishing the sacrifice. Uh, and it was a conflict for him because this is the son, what it says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Everything's hinged on Isaac, and you're going to do, in a sense, Satan's work. You're going to kill him or sacrifice him, which means, well, that's not going to work. God must be going to raise him from the dead. So he considered that God, he did the logic. God's going to raise him from the dead. And we say, well, that's ridiculous. Well, that's exactly what God did with Jesus. Jesus took the sins of the world, and, and, and you know, it's right there's the example right there in the Old Testament that Abraham knew that he could raise him from the dead. Jesus comes, dies on the cross, and even his disciples who explained to them, I'm going to go to the cross. After three days, I'll be raised from the dead. They were surprised when God raised him from the dead. They, they could not understand it. And once again, we say this. God is working a plan in each one of our lives. At some level, God is working in your lives, and he's taking you somewhere. And there's going to be times, especially when it's all fulfilled, that you're going to be like, I didn't see that coming. Now, I'm standing up here teaching Bible. I'm up here scribbling on the board, talking about the Bible. And it's like, I can guarantee you. And I've got, I got eschatology charted out. I'm telling you this is what's going to happen. And when it happens, it's not going to be exactly like I said, but it's going to be like, whoa, yeah, no, I did not, I did not see that coming. I did not know I taught Bible for 35 years, and it's like, yeah, I never, I never said that. I never saw it. I, I'm down here talking about, and that's what Abraham, Isaac, Jake, they're all, they're all seeing this. They all have faith. They all understand this. But one of the things that you begin to understand as a believer, it's like you understand at such a, such a shadow level that when you see this come to pass, that's why guys like Moses could look at Egypt. I mean, you're looking at all the glory of Egypt and go, no this is bigger and it's like i mean you know you can look at your your part-time job you know your crazy life and go yeah i can't wait to get to heaven because it's going to be better because it's easy to imagine life being better than this but when you're pharaoh when you're moses and you're looking at egypt it's like oh and then you end up in the wilderness and you say no this is better it's better to be in the wilderness waiting on god than to be the crown prince of egypt it's like and you can understand that even when he saw it coming, or when he sees it happen, it's going to be bigger than he could understand. So Abraham has an understanding. There's a conflict. He has to then put faith in it and reason that God is going to do something bigger than I can imagine to keep him in faith. So right there, one of the things is your faith is to understand that whatever you understand, what God is doing is beyond, it's going to be better. And the New Testament teaches that that we cannot imagine what God is doing. It, it's, it's bigger and greater than what he has intended for us or what he has inten- intended for us. Uh, that is the end of Abraham right there in that story. And again, we went through a few weeks ago and talked about the whole detail of that. But now we continue from Abraham. And again, you should be very excited. Abraham. If you've been sitting here for the past year on Sunday mornings and dragging yourself through the book of Hebrews, you should be happy what's happening right here because we are leaving Abraham and we're moving to Isaac. It's like, whoa, slow down, slow down. We've only spent 25 weeks on Abraham. Uh, But my plan, again, which doesn't mean anything, is to go through Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph. And what he's doing right here is these four, the four of these patriarchs, is they've all got faith. And he's not going to talk, he's not going to use their lifestyle, their decisions, the, their morality as an example. He's using their faith. They all demonstrated that they had faith. And there's going to be some challenges in the life of Jacob. I mean, is Jacob a man of faith? Uh, you can know that Jacob's a man of faith, not because of his character, but because of what he went for. He was willing to manipulate his brother deceive his father to get the abrahamic promise the problem with that is god told jacob's mom rebecca isaac's wife he told her that jacob is going to receive the blessing while she was still pregnant it's the younger one's going to get the blessing so now when he's older and they're two young men she says okay your your dad's hard of seeing We're going to go in and we're going to deceive him. You're going to pretend you're Esau and you're going to lie to your father to get the blessing. It's like, now that would be not necessarily a matter of faith, but it is definitely 
honoring the promise. It's definitely fearing God and what God has planned, and I want you to have it and not Esau. But Jacob, if he'd heard his bedtime stories, and if Rebekah had told him the bedtime stories, he should have said, but mom, you said God's already chosen me. Why don't we just watch what happens? But he's going to use deception to get what he wants, but it's already been chosen. All right, here we go. Isaac, uh, I've got the notes right here, and we're going to take us, we're going to have to go back and read a few things. Um, chapter 11, verse 20, page 2. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. So this is ta- this is, that's all it says about Isaac. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. In other words, by faith, Isaac also believes the same promise Abraham believed, and he takes that and prays for or blesses or hands it off to his sons. All that Isaac does, Abraham does all these things, Isaac receives the promise, and all he does with his, what's he do? Does he conquer the Philistines? Does he invade Babylon? Does he take over? What does he do? He lives, has twins, and shares the promise with them. I mean, you can say, well, that's not, that's not, he dug some wells and stuff like that. We can find that too. Uh, he, he lied about his wife, said she was his sister a couple times, just like his dad. That's, and then we go back and read that story. Um, but uh, that's kind of encouraging if, if you do nothing else, and I don't want to be, be bittle, belittle this, but what are you doing? Are you, are you trusting God? Do you have faith in God? And are you living and communicating in such a way that you're handing it off to another person, that someone else is going to be like, okay, I believe. He just took, is like, he's like a link in the chain. Abraham had it. Isaac connected it to Jacob. Jacob connected it to his 12 sons, and it continues. So Isaac, although you don't have any you know, great war stories or hero stories, he said, I mean, it's summed up right here. The writer of Hebrews, and of course, we could go on and try to expand on this. He simply says, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. He simply handed it down. And it does say both of them, Jacob and Esau. The normal way of saying it would be Esau and Jacob because Esau is the older one. The writer of Hebrews reverses it, Jacob and Esau. And Isaac, on his own free will, and we'll look at these verses, we know that he was the seed, that, that Rebekah told him, here, I'll make some meat for you and, and you'll go in and tell your father that you're Esau, you went out and hunted this wild game. And then I'll bring you, I'll prepare it, and you can bring it in and, and give it to him. And uh, Isaac, of course, was suspicious because he says, uh, you sound like Jacob, but you smell like Esau. Meaning he put on Esau's clothes. I mean, it's like, wow. I mean, what kind of body odor do these people have? Um, it's like, you can't see, but boy, I can, I can smell you. Yeah, yeah, you're Esau. Then he says something. He's like, you sound like, you sound like Esau. No, no, no. Or you sound like Jacob. He says, no, 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 I'm Esau. And he, he lies to his father, and the father then bless, gives, him, gives him the Abrahamic blessing. And when Esau comes back with the meal, because he actually went out and shot something, hunted it, prepared it, brought it into him, Jacob says, I, I've, now watch, this is so strange. I've got nothing left. I've already given the blessing to your brother. And then Esau was weeping and, and upset. But you know, in, in, uh, for years, ever since I was a child, I hear that story. Why don't you just say, okay, no, no, no. I was lied to. That doesn't count. Because I, you, you deceived me. I, I, I signed the contract under f- false pretense. But he, he spoke it with his mouth. He gave the blessing, and it's gone. Which is interesting because he gave the blessing to who? The one God said was going to get the blessing. So now who's being deceptive? Now, you know, see, I mean, it's like Rebecca, she's not in the right. Jacob's not in the right. But they're actually doing what God is planning on doing. What is Isaac and Esau doing? Have they been conspiring? It's like, what, Isaac didn't know the promise that the younger is going to get the blessing, but he liked Esau better, so it's like, okay, I know what the plan is, but I'm going to make sure that you get this, or you go out, let me give this to you here quick, I'm getting old. He says, I'm about to die. I mean, you get the impression that he's like, you know, it's like he's on a breathing machine or something, and it's like, but then he lives for, you know, he lives for another 20, 30 years or something. I mean, I can't tell you exactly off the top of my head right now, but he doesn't like, and the next day he died. Well, when he comes back, when Jacob comes back, Isaac is still alive. 
His mother has died, Rebecca's dead, but I, Jacob goes and spends 20 years in Padan Aram. When he comes back, Isaac's still there. It's like, Dad, I thought you were dying. It's like, well, <laughs> you, know, you know, you get to a certain age, you say that every day. That's, that might be today. It's, I'm getting pretty old. It's like, well, Dad, that was, that was 20 years ago. And so Isaac is not dying because he's, he's around for, and again, Rebecca dies while Jacob's gone. But anyway, Isaac, in a sense, it appears that he uh, might have been in cahoots with Esau to get the blessing going a different direction. But this writer says in the book of Hebrews, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessing on Jacob and Esau. And what I've got going right there in verses, just go to Genesis 27 so you can see this. And this is again how... Uh, Whatever's going on in their life, this is the point, whatever's going on in their life, Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau, they fear God and they believe this promise. Now, dismiss all their behavior, all their morals are good, bad. What they're, at the end of the day, they're looking at the city on earth and the city God has promised and they're all looking at we want this city here. We want this. They have, they have faith. And again, that faith should influence the way you live your life. But in chapter 27 of Genesis, and I'm just going to read to you, um, here's what he says. So he went to him, uh, I'm in verse, let's say 25. Then he says, my son, bring me some of the game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. This is Jacob deceiving his father. Jacob brought it to him and he ate and he brought some wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. So he, when he went to him to kiss him, when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and says, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of heaven's dew and of earth's riches, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you now watch, this is now talking here, going into nations. It's not just Abraham or uh, Esau or Jacob having a good crop season. It's now projecting this way out that nations are going to be serving. Now these guys are living in tents. They're not citizens even of the land they're living in. And yet they're saying, nations, may nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Now when is that going to take place? That's going to take place when this seed of Isaac goes through Jacob and eventually comes to Jesus Christ, who dies on the cross, ascends into heaven, and eventually he's going to come back, and the nations will serve him, and the peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and now this Abrahamic covenant right here, and those who bless you be blessed. After Isaac finished blessing him and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, here comes Esau in. Look in verse 39. Esau said to his father, do you, have only, do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud, and he found out I missed the blessing. His father Isaac warned him, answered him. Now, this is what explains right here in verse, chapter 11, verse 20. You may say, well, I thought he only blessed Jacob. But it says right here, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Because of this Abrahamic covenant that he understood, he is able to speak to Jacob and to Esau about the future. This is what's going to take place. And he's basing it on what he knows of this covenant. So now Esau is not going to get a great blessing, but he's going to get the results of of this blessing on Jacob of what's going to take place in the future. So he is projecting to Esau. He says, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. Esau is going to end up settling in Edom. And again, we can talk, that's where Petra's at, and they live in the mountains. They did well there, but they had to learn how to live in that type of a land. You will live by the sword, and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his, throw his yoke from your neck. And uh, that would probably be referring to things like 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar came in and Esau or the Edomites joined with Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and that's the book of, uh, uh, what's uh, uh, the prophet, who wrote that book? I, I, I forget the book. 
Help me out. You know, against Esau. You know, Hosea, not Hosea, not Micah, not Joe. I mean, I know the name. Not Habakkuk. You know it, I know it. I just can't. I'm embarrassed right now. I just got done pre-teaching it. Not Haggai. Nahum. Obadiah, because Nahum is against Nineveh. Obadiah is against, yes, Obadiah. Uh, Anyway, that could be referring to that. Okay, I'm going back to this. Never leave your notes. You look like you don't know what you're talking about. Um, uh, Okay, oh, and also Herod, because Herod the Great was an Edomite. So the whole line of family of Herods were from Edom. They were Edomians by that time, Uh, nonetheless. Uh, but when you grow restless, you'll throw off your yoke. Okay, that's, that's him talking. That's Isaac who had faith in the promise, meaning I gave it to Jacob. All that's left is second place for you, Esau. We've uh, got other verses written down here. In chapter 27, verse 33, Isaac knew the blessing belonged to Jacob. And if you look in chapter 23, verse 33, uh, I'm looking here, trying to find the verse. And his father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I am your son, he answered. Your firstborn Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came, and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. In other words, he knew that he gave Jacob the blessing. So he's not saying I can switch this. It's like the, it, the blessing's been taken care of, and he has complete confidence in the blessing. Uh, in chapter 28, verses 1 through 4, uh, now Isaac is going to bless Jacob with full knowledge of what's going on. There's no deceit going on. This is the next chapter, chapter 28, verse 1. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him and commanded him to not marry a Canaanite woman. Uh, go at once to Padan Aram. That's where the family had settled, you know, the relatives or cousins and stuff. To the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. And again, that's going to be an adventure for Jacob. Take a wife from there. And he goes on in verse 4. May he give you, your descendants, the blessing given to Abraham. Look at verse 4. May he give you, your descendants, the blessing given to Abraham, so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien. The land God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac went, sent Jacob on his way. So now you've got right here a full passing from the promise given to Abraham to Isaac. And now with full knowledge, Isaac says, may God give you this land, and it goes to Jacob. So we are done with Esau, and now Jacob, as you know, is going to have 12 sons. These guys are ruthless. Uh, they're, they're watching the cattle, the, the sheep. They're traveling the land. Uh, they're not necessarily good. Uh, they're deceitful. Uh, they, they, the sh- people of Sechem uh, want to make a treaty with them, and they end up uh, betraying him, killing the men. That's another story. Uh, Joseph is the second to youngest. He's the 11th son. There's going to be one son younger than him, Benjamin. Joseph <coughs> is uh, the son of Rachel. Of course, Jacob's got four wives, Leah and her handmaiden, and then Rachel and her handmaiden, uh, Billa and Zilpha. Billa, and I can't remember the other one's name. But he's got four wives. Part of that's because uh, his father-in-law betrayed him, gave him Leah before he got Rachel. And then because the two sisters got into a breeding contest of who could have the most children, and Rachel's not having any children, Rachel gives her handmaiden, like Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham, Rachel gives, I think it was Billa, to Jacob so he can have a son, so she can claim it. So now there's Leah and Rachel, and then Rachel's not having any children, so she gives him Billa. Billa has children. Leah stops having children, so she gives her maidservant, I can't remember her name, and so he's got children coming from four different women, and he ends up with ten, but poor Rachel has... No children. Until finally she's pregnant and she has a son and gives birth to Joseph. And because Joseph loved Rachel, he loves Joseph more than the other ten. They're like just, well, whatever. And uh, they're working. And I, I don't know how they got treated or whatever. But there's, you know, Simeon and Levi and Reuben and Judah. 
Judah's the fourth one. But Simeon and Levi, Reuben's the oldest, I believe, and then Simeon and Levi, I believe. But they're like violent. They, they slaughtered an entire town by themselves. Uh, the older ten are not treating Jacob's products, the sheep, right. Uh, they're eating the lambs they want. They're not being responsible. And so Joseph, if he's got a fault, he's a tattletale. He comes back and reports to his father, Mm-mm, we need to get better help because those guys. And so he's given a neg- bad report. Joseph ends up getting a coat of many colors from Jacob, which means it was some kind of a tribal sign that he was the, the Isaac. He was to, Joseph was to Jacob what Isaac was to Abraham. And what Jacob was to Isaac, he is the chosen son of Jacob. And the other ten, of course, you know the story, they got jealous and we came up to check on them. He's like in a management position. It'd be like having 11 brothers and the youngest is the manager of the top ten, the older ten. So he comes up to check on how they're doing and they throw him into a pit and and now they don't know what to do with him. One wants to kill him. Reuben convinces them, or Judah convinces them to sell him so they don't kill him. So they sell him to the Midianites and they take him down to Egypt and sell him into Egypt. So Joseph's gone. The boys, the brothers... They take his coat of many colors, kill a lamb, put blood all over it, take it back, says, hey, uh, did you send Joseph up to see us? Because he never showed up, but we did find this on the way home. Is this his coat? It's like, and without lying to their father, Jacob, notice the 12 sons are deceiving the deceiver who deceived Isaac to get the blessing. Now they deceive him. And they didn't tell him that this is Joseph's coat. They go, look, is this his coat? It's like, oh my gosh. And he jumps to all kinds of conclusions. The animal, an animal attacked him, ate him, and this is all that's left. And he begins to mourn for his son. And by, by that time, Rachel had had another son, Benjamin, and she died giving birth to Benjamin. She calls him Ben-O-Mai, Ben-O-Mai, something like that, which means son of my suffering. As soon as she dies, Jacob changes his name to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. So Joseph is gone according to his thinking. Now all he's got is Benjamin, and he keeps him in the house, doesn't let him go anywhere, just stays in the house, plays computer games uh, because he doesn't want him to get hurt. But the other 10, you guys, whatever, just get out there and take care of my stuff. So now, you know, Benjamin, then they're all watching their father grieve for like 20 years. And so they're over, little Benjamin is like protected by his dad, protected by his, because they all feel guilty. Uh, Of course, then there's a famine. He's down in, now Joseph is down in Egypt you know, sorry, seven years with Potiphar in his house, gets lied about, uh, gets brought out of prison, works for the, the pharaoh, and becomes the visor, uh, second in position over all the affairs. And you can see, again, I don't have time to go into it, but you can see at the, that time, we're talking 1700 B.C., about that time, the whole, there used to be little power stations all around Egypt. You'd have a pharaoh, but there'd be like junior pharaohs all around. They all have their own power base. During this time, all those power bases got absorbed by the pharaoh. Something happened economically that they had to give up their power to this pharaoh, who then ruled the whole land. And it probably ties into Joseph talking to the pharaoh, saying, you start storing up grain for seven years. And one pharaoh stored up grain, or the main one, and all these little kings around that he was overseeing, they didn't have anything. So, okay, a grain in exchange for your power. And so by the time Joseph is done, there's one, one pharaoh and all those other guys are gone. And it's, it's more like a dictatorship. And that, that's where pharaoh comes from. And Joseph manipulated that whole economy. If, it's, if, if that's the ca- one way or the other, the Bible's got a story, history's got a story. If they're the same story, you know, that's, that's the debate. I'll show you some other things. But anyway, Joseph's down in Egypt the whole time. Now, after... Oh, what do you is it, is it like a, another 20 years? You got seven years in the seven years of plenty, seven years of famine, probably you know six years in Potiphar's house or something. You're at about 20 years or so. I can't remember off the top of my head. So Jacob uh, sends his 10 sons, not Benjamin, sends his 10 sons that I hear there's grain in Egypt. It, because that's what all the other leaders did. They gave up their power to get grain. Joseph, Jacob says, go down there and get grain, whatever it takes. And they bring grain back, but they said that, uh, he says, if, if, we, if we come back a second time, this guy told us, and he looks like an Egyptian, told us, uh, you got to bring your young, because he says he asked us all kinds of, 
how did he find, how did you, why did you tell him we had, you had a son named Benjamin? He said, well, he was asking us all kinds of questions. He asked about you. He asked about our business. He asked all kinds of questions. Kind of a nosy guy, I thought. So, but why did you tell him about Benjamin? He wouldn't let us any, give us any food until he answered all the questions. So they ran out of food the second time, and they said, we're going to die. We're all going to die unless you let us take Benjamin. So he says, you know, do it, you know. I'm a miserable, miserable, miserable old man. My favorite son is dead. My favorite wife is dead. I see, now he's, he's living in the blessings of God, but he's totally miserable. You know what I'm saying? Because of just he's got ten wicked sons. Doesn't know there's one. And now Joseph, of course, had dreams about this. You know, when he was younger, he had, God gave him dreams about all this taking place. Okay. So finally, they go down there, and you know the whole story. We don't have time to go through the whole story of Joseph. It would be fun. We probably should. Through a series of events, he... Uh, uh, brings him in, Benjamin's there, and Benjamin gets like, they all sit at a table with food, and Benjamin gets a special table with like, he sits at the smorgasbord with everything. And he gets all kinds of favor. And then uh, he sends him back home, but he tells the servant to take his golden glass from his table and put it in their grain bag and send him away. And then put their money in the bag too. So then when they go on, they get about you know five miles out of town or whatever. The police take, overtake them, we, someone stole the master's mug, goblet, glass, coffee cup, whatever. And it's like, they go, we wouldn't take it. And they open it up. They find the money in all their bags, but they open up Benjamin's. It's like, Benjamin. Benjamin stole the golden cup. And, the guy, and they bring them all back to jo- Joseph. And Joseph does this to him. You know the story. Joseph says this. He says, you guys don't need to worry about anything. No, no, was it the money was in the bag the first time or the second time? Anyway, right, the main thing here is, uh, the cup was in Joseph's bag. And Joseph says, you guys, you ten guys are clean. I have no, no qualms with you. It's this little snot who took my golden goblet. He says, you all go back to your father and have a good time. I will put this guy in prison. And he, you'll never see him again. Not a problem for me. They're like, no. You know, now, they did that to Joseph. It's like, fine, cool. Here's his coat. Looks like he's dead and walked away. Joseph puts them in the exact same position, and they all are starting making, and Judah ends up saying, he says, no, no, no. He says, take me. I'd rather be in prison than have to go back and tell my father what happened to Benjamin. And at that point, Joseph breaks down, starts weeping, and, and they don't know what's going on. It's like, is this like an Egyptian mourning cry before he kills us all? <laughs> what is this? And he goes, he goes, I am Joseph. You know the story. And they're like, and now they're like, Oh, no, now they're really scared. And, and so he goes, go tell my father I rule Egypt and bring it down here. Don't bring any of your stuff. I know the kind of stuff you've got. Leave it there. You know, they've got U-Hauls. With, they look like the Bill Hill, Beverly Hillbillies coming down to Egypt. It's like, leave it there. Look what I got. And, uh, and they come down. And, of course, okay, now Jacob's in Egypt and gets to see his son Joseph. And now is the beginning of that 400 years in the in the foreign land promised to abraham i mean it, eschatology is happening you see what i'm saying this is the eschatology is like they're living in eschatology because it was predicted it was going to take place and now jacob is going to live and now he's now he is dying and he's on his bed and he can't get out of bed and he wants to bless and that's how the book of genesis ends oh my gosh i'm running out of time uh the book of genesis ends in uh genesis chapter 46 uh, he goes down and says, so it is, his name is Israel by this time, set out with all that was his, and when he's seen right there, set out with all that was his, he didn't listen, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifice to the God of his father Isaac, he goes by Abraham's hometown of Beersheba, he offers sacrifice because he's leaving the promised land. Remember how they couldn't go back to where they came from because they were looking for a city that was not here because they're staying in this land? But the prophecy was, you're going to leave this land and go to a foreign land and be eventually be slaves there. So Jacob now, has the, Abraham lived in the land, Isaac lived in the land, Jacob lived in the land, he went to Padanaram for a while. But this is the land. But now as he goes by Beersheba, he offers sacrifice to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and says, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father. He said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, because that's kind of against the policy. For I will make you into a great nation there. That's what's going to take place. 
I will go down to Egypt with you and will surely bring you back again, and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Now, he hasn't seen Joseph for some, you know, 20, some 30 years. I can't tell you exactly. Yeah. When Jacob left the Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in, his, in their carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him, they also took with them the livestock and their possessions they had acquired in Canaan. And Jacob, and, and again, remember, they've got a lot of stuff because Abraham was very wealthy. And all his offspring went to Egypt. So when it says all his offspring went to Egypt, that means everybody in this family is now in Egypt. The seed is now in Egypt. And what's going to take place is he's going to die and he's going to bless all of the children and, and speak of the Abrahamic covenant and the promises. And now we've got to pick this up next week because we're out of time. But we're going to see Jacob is going to now speak of the blessing by faith. And then Jake, Joseph, we're going to rush ahead. When Joseph dies, uh, he's going to say, do not bury me here. Bury me in the land of Israel. Uh, in, in, in Sechem, the land my father won with his sword. Now, they're going to build, the Bible's going to say they built, they're going to mummify him just like they did the pharaohs. They're going to build a tomb for him and put him in a sarcophagus, which is a box that you can carry, like a, you know, a coffin, but it's a sarcophagus. They could, they'll be able to carry him out. And when Joshua, you got, that's what I've got written down on the bottom of page three, Genesis 50 is Joseph saying, don't bury me here. Exodus 13, 19 is the Exodus, and that's where Moses is saying, go get Joseph's bones. So Joseph's bones are still there in 1446. So if we're saying 1700, 1440, Joseph's bones are still there, and Moses says, go get them, and they, they find them. It's not like, well, we don't know where they're at. They go and get them. There's a, there's a tomb, and they carry him with them, and they carry him in a land, and then in Joshua 24, 32, after 40 years in the wilderness of carrying around the sarcophagus, wherever they go in the wilderness, they cross over, and in Joshua 24, Joshua and the people set his bones in a tomb in the land of Israel, in the land of Sechem, where he wanted to be buried. Uh, and that's the case right there. They're excavating that tomb right now, looking for it. But if you want to, very quickly on the back page, this is bonus information from next week. This is not for sure, but it is very, very, it's worth considering. There's a place called Avaris. You see right there at the map, Avaris. I've got a little circle around it. That is the land of Goshen. That is where they settled in the land of Goshen. It is a Semitic city, a civilization that excavated down to the layer of the time of Joseph. In that area, again, this is like all, not all, but especially a, 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 a unique excavation like this. It was a Semitic settlement from the time period of 17, 18, 19, or 17, 16, 1500s. Very prosperous. They had families there. Uh, and then there was a time where uh, they had an overwhelming uh, wave of infant deaths that were put in there. The people started getting very, very poor. The nutrition, their bones dropped way off around the 1500s. Uh, and when they got in there and they're excavating it, they, you see that bottom picture now, that bottom picture right there, that's an art, artist's drawing of one of the towns. There's a huge palace there that is designed and surrounded by homes that match the Semitic style of building. There's an Egyptian-style home, and then there's a Semitic-style home from that time that we would have brought out of, you know, Haran and Padanaram down into Israel, and they would have brought it with that style of house. And so... It is clearly, no doubt, a Semitic settlement of Asians or people from Damascus, Padanaram, Haran, you know, Abraham's type people that was settled there in the 17, 16, 1500s. Uh, now you see that little pyramid in the back? They found that tomb, but some, and that it, it had been crushed. Someone had gone in and vandalized the place. There was no bones, no sarcophagus. But there was a statue that had been smashed that was left. And this, is, this right here is the head of the statue right there. And uh, they can tell from different features there what it would, would have looked like. There's another part of the little staff. There's a little uh, like a stick that you would throw for weapons that he was holding. It's a sign of a ruler. It's two times the size of the average height. And they can tell that it was colored with uh, striped. I can see on that little picture here, little stripes on it. 
It was a like black, white, and red striped coat that he had. And the style of hair is not Egyptian. It is, it is styled the way the Semitics or the Egyptians would draw. Like, you know, you have someone that would draw, like we have a culture, we draw, this is what this race looks like, this is what this race, you know, just the, the general look. This is, the, the, this is what the Egyptians drew, a Semitic. That's what you see on the walls and stuff. This is clearly a Semitic person in Egypt around the 1700s that was a ruler that had a pyramid built around their palace, uh, and they're, they're calling this the tomb of Joseph. And that is Avaris, and it's, it's uh, again, a bunch of, you know, there's much more. You can look it up. If you look up Avaris, Joseph's tomb, you can find it. And it, there's debates. And that, that's not a slam dunk, but it's one of those things, the right place, right time, and uh, it certainly is worth considering. Uh, it'd be fun to find out if they can find, if, they, if they've, they've got it located uh, as they excavate, if they can find the, the, the sarcophagus, if they could find the sarcophagus of Joseph in that tomb as they, as they go through it, uh, if it would match this time period of how they buried Egypt, because he'd be buried just like an Egyptian. And again, someone came in, they would have, came, when, when was it was smashed? It was probably smashed right after the exodus. They came in and just destroyed that place. And he was like a national hero, like a George Washington, until this generation, and they smashed his statue. Uh, you know, they were one of the uh, waves of cancel culture that goes through every nation eventually, as they canceled out the guy that saved their nation because they got on the wrong side of history. Okay, I'll pray, and we'll clean this up next week. I really wanted to march through all four of those guys today, but we'll do that next week. Father, we thank you again for the chance to look into these things. We thank you for your word. We ask that we again would have faith and trust you, trust your promises, and allow that faith and that confidence to manifest in our lives as you conform us into the image of Jesus Christ, not just what we believe and what we think, but how we live and how we act. Again, we thank you for this, and ask again that we'd be people of faith at this time in history. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for your time.